America America You are so grand and golden Oh, I wish I was deep in America tonight Welcome back, America, to another up-close-and-personal edition of The Multiverse. So this is it, huh? This is what? The end. Uh, I mean, it's the end of our first season. This is the final episode in our very first world, and I don't know. I guess I'm just feeling a little wistful. Okay. Well, I guess all good things come to an end. And to be honest, I mean, I think we're just getting started. You're right. There is a lot more in store. Today, we're getting up close and personal with our last DC insider, Courtney Seeloff. She is a powerhouse if I've ever met one. Who talks class, growing up poor, and passing in the socioeconomic tribes of DC. There's a cultural knowledge you just don't have if you didn't grow up having it, right? So like coming here, there's just things I missed, comments I didn't quite understand. And of course, I would like try to look them up. I didn't know you didn't eat the edamames entirely. I sat down my first sushi restaurant, my first sushi restaurant in my early 20s. My kids have had sushi already. And God, they have a different life than I have. But like, I didn't know. I didn't know that you like pop them out of the things. I didn't know these like teeny little things. Like I'm pretty good at learning how to pass. I did that in high school. I would like borrow clothes and like watched all the teen movies and figured that out. So it's that ability to pass. I think that's also made me really fluid in campaign world. I can go into lower economic communities better than some of my my colleagues could. And I learned how to behave myself in really wealthy homes. And like, you figure out that passing. And I think that's really because I had to as a kid. Like I said, I was was fairly popular. And I don't know that that's always the case for really broke kids. I asked Courtney to elaborate on the edamame incident. Oh, it was like at a work event. (laughs) And like it was a big circle table. I can picture the restaurant, a lot of purple neon, which is very weird. Um, I was working for a labor union, but this was like, was it? No, 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 no. I was working for um, a casino company then. Um, I was a fundraiser. And this was an event and everyone's sitting down and everyone's put the food out and they lay the edamame down and I'm just like, cool, pop it in my mouth. And then I look around and everyone's got this other little dish and they're separating it. And I'm like... Alrighty then. <laughs> like, I don't know if anyone noticed. They may have. I have no idea. But it was that moment flash. I'm like, oh. Did that, did that stay with you? Did you think about that afterwards? I mean, that was 20 years ago, and I'm still talking about it. <laughs> that actually has to do with what I was going to ask you, which yeah. was, do you think that this is mostly, um, yeah, something that you cared about because that was part of your psychological makeup and yes. what you were doing? or? Yep. Is there sort of this upwardly mobile, um, you know, conformist environment in D.C. where everyone Mm -hmm. is trying to do the right thing all the time and to be in the know? Like you Mm -hmm. kind of talked about that before. You need to know everything all the time. Mm -hmm. Is it um, competitive in that way or are people like who... Would they I, care if you eat a whole? Edamame? I don't think they would care. I think it's a little bit of both, though. I think DC culture overall, if you think back to like the grand entertaining, and it was very much like the Kennedys and Catherine Graham and more of a conservative, genteel, this is still a southern town, and it applied 
to like the very wealthy, I think that still holds. And then you have the older time families who've lived here forever. A lot of the African American communities, um, especially the ones who stuck around even through the 80s, like they have a way of comporting themselves, very middle class. It's still the South again, so it's like more conservative behaviors. Um, and I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. But then for me, it's also like figuring out how that works, figuring out what the like, what the class mores are at each particular um, income level. I think that has a big impact. Mm-hmm. I think that's how I was able to figure out how to get into college. Um, I had a guidance counselor who said that, that I was in college material. Hi, Mr. Meesfield. I have a graduate degree now. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> um, but I think like you have to kind of figure out, and I was able to watch. So I, I, it is my mission to have the most stable home I can manage for my kids because my growing up was chaos. So that is like, and I noticed that from my friends, and it's like learning the middle class mores, and now it's different. It's like the competitive schooling, and the that's the upper middle class, and God only knows what happens. I don't think I'll hit any higher than this. But. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. It took a little while to get there, but yes. I've worked my hiney off, man. <laughs> yeah. I feel like women, like Hillary Clinton's era, women who were in their 60s had to be more aggressive than anybody. They had to be smarter, faster, better, harder. I think I'm on the very tail end of that, so we're a lot more permissive of male behavior. And our way was to be, we'd outgross and outdrink the guys. Like, we could play just as hard okay. as you can. can. we parse that out a little bit, though? Do yeah. you think that that need to keep up with the guys and, like, drink mm-hmm. them under the table is yeah. part of what led to being in so many damn precarious, fucked up situations? Absolutely. Everyone on campaigns is and sleeping th- with everyone. Okay. <laughs> and is that just a D.C. thing or is that, like, a universal thing? I have no idea, but I know campaign culture, it was, especially when I was still involved directly on campaigns, it was hard drinking, hard partying, lots of sex, and somehow we managed to get people elected. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So basically, you know, we're coming off of our our very first Up Close and Personal with Lauren, and now here we are with Courtney. Um, And I guess what I find most interesting is the fact that Despite the stereotypical kind of impression that I think I had for sure and many people have about D.C. where a lot of the people that end up there and are working there have this sort of like, I don't know, I guess for lack of a better description, like a silver spoon in their mouth when they show up. They're there on, you know, maybe mommy or daddy's dime and they've got some great internship and they're not really making any money, but they're, you know, putting in this time in order to like land a bigger, better gig and on some level, that's true for for Courtney, um, but you know she comes from like a very challenged socioeconomic background, and she did work her ass off, and she has done this thing that everyone strives to do these days, which is provide a better life for her children. So she just kind of busts that stereotype. She's like, "I'm here, and I'm taking all these skills that I learned because of my challenging background, and making something." great out of it and elevating my family situation. And now I know how to eat edamame motherfuckers. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) And she throws her own fundraisers where I'm sure she serves edamame. (laughs) Well, we talked, we talked about this with her. She was like, one of the best ways to get fed when you're broke and you're in campaign culture and in campaign world 
is to be the the person who attends all the fundraisers with <laughs> the candidate because there's free food. And she was, you know, very clear about the fact that she puts out wonderful food at those events when she hosts them. I mean, it's like paying it forward. Um, yeah. One thing that struck me about what Courtney said was that she has more fluency with class now than some of her peers who did come from a more privileged background. And she can go hang in less privileged neighborhoods and communities in a way that is totally comfortable. And she can also hobnob in sort of upper class you know, cultural environments. But the interesting thing is that she said she can learn the mores of these upper echelon stuff and she's comfortable in the um, not as privileged environments too. And it made me think about, you know, we talked about this the other day, like um, with Trey, like going in certain directions, we're talking about like becoming more progressive versus- Can you go the other way? Right, like, and so, and that's something that's you've said before, which is- um, feeling like, you know, sort of more wealthy, progressive, elitist communities have trouble in um, less privileged and or, um, you know, more conservative environments because they just are like, oh my God, I'm freaking out. I don't know how to act around these people. And um, anyway, that was just something that I, I wondered if in some ways her background was an advantage that someone with more outward privilege, what people would consider privilege, um, actually that they can't access ever, maybe. Well, okay, what this is making me think of is the concept of upward mobility. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's something you hear all the time. It's like a very American ideal, uh, something we strive for, something we strive to provide for our children, but you never hear about downward mobility, you know? So I think that your comment here is, you know, I would assume that that's correct, that it's harder and maybe it's just because we're less conscious of it or less, it's less desirable in our culture and in in our larger American tribe that it's harder. I mean, okay. When you said downward mobility, it did make me think though, that like our generation is one that a lot of people are like worse off than their parents. And, um, but we're not trying to be correct. You know, she, she, she's trying to build something. Right. Few people try to, to go in reverse. Right. I know. It's true. Except for perhaps a starving artist who's yearning to understand his subject better. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Um, Okay, Mm -hmm. but the idea of cultural knowledge Mm -hmm. and social mores I think is really interesting um, because it does take a ton of kind of cunning and street smarts and um, self-motivation to figure those things out, you know, some people just don't care. And, and Courtney cared from a young age, who knows why, you know, perhaps it was because she wanted to fit in better with her uh, friends, but it's something that she carried with her and, you know, really figured out how to, how to do. And I, I just, I felt like she exudes this level of like badassery that, you know, a lot of women in that situation, I mean, I know a lot of women like this and, I guess I know a lot of men like this too, but I think the women stand out more. And Courtney just, you know, she forged ahead and she has created this company where she does this, you know, she is able to do her creative work, uh, provide this great life for her children, continue at least to a certain extent to, to move upwards. Although she did mention how, you know, she feels like there's, there's a certain um, like ceiling for her and that, 
I wondered about that. It, it made me also think about her her comment about how, you know, women of, say, like the Hillary Clinton generation, and she felt like she was on the tail end of this, had to be smarter, faster, better, harder, all of those things. And I guess, um, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of, it makes me think of Brad and how some of like our greatest challenges become our greatest strengths. And that's like this beautiful kind of like mushy ideal. However, I do think it's true. Like, I think that, um, you know, she's the kind of gal who took those things and turned them into a positive. And this, I think, breaks tribal boundaries in that it comes back to that very Republican notion of lifting yourself up by your bootstraps and making something of yourself. And so, I don't know, like, I wonder how many sort of, quote, liberals view themselves that, like, if they heard that, maybe could find a point of relation to a more conservative moray. I think that breaking it down in other language, like, again, not to keep referencing Trey, but there would be ways to de- to use language that anyone could relate to. Um, I mean, for instance, like, you're like, she, you know, pulled herself up by her bootstraps. She came from this chaotic, you know, underprivileged background. And I was thinking about the other day we were talking about power and how we have different levels of power and in different ways all at the same time. And so I would say for Courtney, you know, like her personality and her drive is something that is super powerful and that I'm sure like helped her get to where she is today. Well, what she does is work with language, you know, like that's, that's, that is her job. Like she creates and distributes language in a way that helps whatever cause she's working for. And this is something that we found again and again and again in DC, that so much of this comes down to the language we're using, how we're saying what we're saying, who we're speaking to, know your audience. And perhaps that's one of those, um, maybe that's like just a standout thing in DC. Like maybe that's why, you know, another stereotype of DC is that everyone there seems like really sharp, really smart. Even if you don't agree with them, they're, they're on it. You know, there's a quick comeback. There's there's always something there. There's not a lot of, like, <laughs> pregnant pauses when you're speaking to people in D.C. So what do you think of this idea of, like, survival of the fittest? Because that was, like, something I was just thinking about in terms of her and her story and, like, you know, your question about conservative people and li- progressive people and how they would view. Well, that's that's exactly what I was saying, though. Yeah. You know, she is like the epitome of that, right. and and that's why she's thriving. And and a lot of it comes back to a challenging background. You know, I mean, this this makes me think of a moment um, in early motherhood for me when I was just just in the weeds. I mean, could hardly see the light of day, no sleep, the whole nine yards. And I was talking to another mom friend of mine and she was like, Katie, yeah, you've been through the shit. Like that's, that's some stuff. But how many people do you know who haven't been through crazy shit like this that you respect or find interesting? (laughs) And it was the kindest, most inspiring, lovely thing, an important thing that anyone had said to me, maybe ever. It just, like, it was, you know, there's those moments in life where you're like, before this happened, I was one way. After this happened, I was another way. It really changed my perspective and shook things up and started to make me appreciate the hardships of life. And I think that's what I love so much about Courtney. Okay, so the other thing that I thought was really interesting that Courtney brought up, uh, like, like a standout and why we use this clip here is um, her comment about the conservative genteel of DC, because... 
I guess it struck me because I, even though it clearly is <laughs> in a physical sense, um, a Southern town, I don't think of it that way because I think of it as this, I think of it as DC, like not even really part of the US somehow. Like it's just this other entity that exists inside our boundaries, but is this other world. It does feel very isolated to me in my mind. I don't know why, I guess. But um, to think of it more in terms of history and, um, you know, just just rationally, um, it has this very liberal rap. And, you know, especially these days, especially, you know, during the Obama years, like it just, it feels very liberal in DC. Um, however, it comes from this very conservative culture. And so there's this kind of beautiful blending of like two things happening that starts to explain some of the ways that perhaps like our, our larger perception of the town or just the culture there is where, cause it does feel conservative, you know, it's the Ann Taylor bot thing. It's the, it's the dress code. It's just sort of the way of the town. And I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and Lauren brought this up too. You know, she has, you know, roots there. Her family has roots there. And it's interesting to think of like the very like black African-American in Lauren's preferred terminology, black American history of that town. And Courtney made this comment, you know, a lot of these old black families survived even through the eighties. And I don't know, I, I just start to think now more of it as like a town full of people and a city full of, you know, all these mixed cultures as opposed to this monolithic political town. And I like that, you know, that makes me feel more connected to it because there's lots of other places mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. I mean, that was when we were there, um, that definitely seemed more apparent to me. Also, I, we haven't talked about this at all, but um, we should dig some of these up, some of our interviews with our Uber drivers, because that was a kind of interesting thing, too, is that I think part of why it does seem kind of removed from the rest of the country is because it's also extremely international, which the U.S. in general, like our mainstream culture is not that international, unfortunately. Well, you know, I, I brought up this point with um, Kodiak, I think, and I don't know if it made the cut of her episode. I don't think it did. But I just like posited this theory that perhaps why DC feels so um, otherworldly is because it has a better time relating internationally than it does to the rest of the country. I mean, you know, there's international politics and, and DC is a huge, plays a huge role in that. And yet a lot of the politicians and the conversations happening in DC don't always seem to connect very well to say rural America or middle America or, you know, non-coastal cities. It, it feels a little more out of touch. So is it in better touch with the rest of the world than it is with the rest of the country? I don't know. Probably on some level because it's so news-driven. And so, you know, what's happening in the news is totally different than, like, what's happening on... In your backyard, yeah. Street, yeah. America. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of those Uber drivers, if I recall, um, at least a couple of them had very interesting views on Trump. You know, they were like, we think that he's kind of crazy and like perhaps not fit for office, but we also believe, um, they, they gave him a lot of credit for some of the points he's made about how this country is 
a really incredible country, and that's exactly why they're here, working their asses off, driving Ubers and working for jobs, you know, because they are trying to provide a better life for their families and for themselves, and this is where they think they can do it. I mean, totally, and that was actually where I was going with that. So it was, like, very humbling, actually, for me to have those conversations, and it does relate to Courtney's story, too, and just how real but also subjective um, our situations are, and it's kind of like what we do with our situation, and there's so many people that I think, um, especially the liberal people that I hang out with, who are like, everything sucks, things, the U.S. is like, you know, going down the drain, I can't believe that Trump is our president, like, you know, student debt is skyrocketing, the economy's not good, like, you know. Everything's like going said, to hell in handbasket. Right. Yeah. And um, then you talk to these guys who are our Uber drivers, and they were like, yeah, I have my whole family back in my country. I sent, I worked like 100 hours a week, and I sent all my money back to them, and I hope to see them in maybe five years. And But this is so much better than living where I lived before, and I'm just like trying to get them out of there. Well, and, and so this is, what's so funny about this, Kate, is that one of the biggest tribal wedge issues in the political space right now is that sense of um, patriotism. And when I talk to a lot of conservatives, they're like, the thing I hate most about liberals is that they are shitting on our country. They They are not patriotic. Like they, they aren't proud to be Americans. They're making this sound like a terrible place to be. And it's an awesome place to be. And I love it. And I am, you know, a lot of my beliefs are rooted in that and founded in that. And this, interestingly enough, is so, so those conservative, that conservative mindset is much more in touch with an immigrant mindset, mindset, at least in terms of our interactions in DC with Uber drivers who are not US, who, who weren't either weren't US citizens or weren't born in the US. And if we could see, you know, Statistics don't change tribal, you know, tendencies. However, it's an interesting point to make. Okay, I'm having this thought all of a sudden where I'm like doing a full 180 and I the point that I was like making that you're kind of expanding on, I am now wondering if those people who say that about patriotism um, believe that because they're not the sort of on the receiving end of institutionalized racism, classism, sexism. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they might be in power and they're like, they're relating more with the origin story of our country, which is an immigrant story. And that is how everyone got to where they are today in America. Everyone's Wait, that's really interesting. Right. Yeah. And so they're relating to that because they're kind of like reinforcing There's an organic yes. connection. Yeah. 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 And yet, you know, a lot of, um, so if you take that stereotypical sort of Trumper, you know, somebody who um, in in terms of like stereotypes is not highly educated, doesn't come from a, a huge socioeconomic status, you know, high socioeconomic status and um, is living in, say, rural parts of the country, toting a gun, um, that is someone who potentially, though, is on the receiving end of institutional. They're not on the receiving end of institutional racism. However, they are dealing with like socioeconomic inequality. I mean, I was just reading this this article the other day about you know like how screwed rural America is, and it's 
pretty bad. You know, I mean, you're, you're far more likely to not get good medical care and be much further away from a hospital. You're far more likely to not get a good education. You're far more likely to end up with a, a really low paying job. You're far more likely to end up with addiction. I mean, the, the statistics go on and on and on and on and they're terrible. And they're like, with AI, this is only going to make the disparity between urban and rural worse because it's going to make life easier in the urban areas for urban dwellers. And it's going to make life harder for people who don't have access to it. It's just going to increase that gap. Maybe not make it harder, but it's not going to help. And so it's going to widen that gap. And it's interesting because will perspectives and especially political perspectives and affiliations start to shift as our country becomes less white and people in rural America become worse and worse off? Or will someone like Trump, let's say, prey on the disparity that, that already exists and the tensions that already exist and only exploit that? Or will things get so bad that people start to realize whoever's in power, regardless of how manipulative they're being, doesn't have their back and start to kind of shift? I have no idea. I'm just wondering, like, where this goes. How does this play out? I don't know. I mean, and again, it's still uh, a matter of perspective too because even though like you know rural America might be worse off than it was a couple decades ago it's still possibly better than it is in many other countries all over the world right right you know? and so, but but this is a slippery slope because I'm with you like I, that's kind of where my mind naturally lives and yet um a lot of people are like, okay, but the fact that it's better, this is a very liberal thing, the fact that it's better than these other places doesn't, like, that's dangerous to fall back on because we should be striving for a higher ideal. It's, it's sort of that balance between striving but also gratitude for what we do have. And I think that that kind of speaks to what you were saying about how you hear conservative people say, like, you know, liberals aren't patriotic, they shit all over our country. And it's actually not quite so bad. And um, I don't know. I'm just I, I'm not not even like completely sure where I land on this spectrum because I probably feel all of it at the same time, which just makes me feel like maybe once again, you know, everything is complex, and you have to kind of hold both of those things, like strive to be better, but at the same time, like know what you have. And so this is the stress balance you were talking about in one of our, maybe one of our first debriefs. And I really liked that where you have to balance, um, the thing that motivates you to strive for more and the thing that allows you to not freak out because things are bad and could always get worse, you know? I mean, and there, there is some like kind of happy medium, but you know, there's no real balance, right? There's just the act of balancing. I'm stealing that line from our friend Simon. Um, great line. You know, power has been like a big thing that has come up in my mind during this whole season, actually. And um, this episode is particularly interesting in Courtney's story and talking about class because whenever I think about power and who has power in our country, um, and like I was saying, we all have varying amounts, like your personality. If you're good looking, that's power. If you have money, that's power. If you're educated, that's power. If you, you know, all of these different ways that you can wield power. The thing that I think trumps everything else is money. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like the people with the most power are the people with money. I think in our current system, you're totally right. And yet, um, 
I don't inherently think that that's the most powerful thing. I think that that's like a, a social agreement that we've made and it can be changed. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think that that's true, but I think that that's like if we look at our world today, like what system, you know, what comes down to, what where does inequality ultimately lie? Like what's the kernel of it? I think it's, you know, access to resources. and and But that's money. That's like... Well, yes, it, it gets turned into money. It always right. gets turned into money. Yeah, there's so many other resources right now. But yeah, you're right. I mean, what was it at the end of that movie, um, The Big Short? Uh, you know, he starts investing in water. I mean, it's pretty obvious like where things are going. And then there's a power grab, and it's a money grab. And you know, it's interesting because as we segue into our next season, <laughs> little teaser alert, um, we're looking at the cannabis industry and. It's so obvious to me, and it wasn't until we really started to like dig in, that what's happening right now is consolidation, and it's consolidation of power and resources, and there's like this big kind of five emerging, just like it did in, you know, with booze, like Budweiser and, you know, whatever, the cores, I mean, like those companies emerged just like it did in big tobacco. And everyone else is just going to kind of get screwed because those guys write the rules, and they're all tied into government officials and, you know, the way our finance system works and stock market and all of that, it's all a big old boys club still. And so I loved how Courtney went to this place of like, I'm on the tail end of this, this generation where women had to be smarter, faster, better, harder. And you could replace women with like, um, people with less income, um, people who are black or brown colored skin, people who, you know, aren't as highly educated, like pick your kind of socioeconomic class or your um, category of, of, of people in our country right now. And she's saying that it's, it's getting better. But I kind of feel like it's still true that, that if you are at a disadvantage you still do have to be smarter, faster, better, harder. Like oh, yeah. it's, I don't, I don't see that it's changed that much. To be perfectly honest, I see us on a big, repetitive loop where we did this—the same thing that's happening in the cannabis industry right now—happened to farmers. It happened in our medical system. It happened in our financial financial system. Like it's, it's just kind of the way this goes. And when are we going to open our eyes and like preemptively, kind of stop the cycle and the madness? I don't know when. Today, actually, earlier today, I was on the phone with someone giving a job recommendation orally because I, like, couldn't get it together to write the letter just because of, I don't know, having nursing 24-7. And um, the person I was recommending um, doesn't have a college degree. And I was just, you know, it's for a position that would normally require one. And they were still in the running. And I decided to just bring it up because I was like, you know, I know this is something that is normal for this kind of position, but I just want to say that this person is like extremely smart. And the fact that they don't have a degree has more to do with the fact that they didn't have financial support to put them through college to get to this other point. And so that's literally the only reason why it's not lack of interest, you know, intellectual curiosity intelligence, anything like that. It was simply like some of us are more advantaged than others. And that's how you get to that place. Was it a man or a woman? It was a woman. And does she have children? Yep. Okay. So this brings up another point. Um, women are expected to- Oh no, to... the person I'm recommending no, does not have kids. The person I was talking to did have kids. 
Okay, well, nevertheless, you know, women in this country, mothers in this country specifically, are expected to work as if they don't have children and parent like they don't have a job. And it's this huge double standard. And Courtney has dealt with that and made something wonderful out of her life and provided for her children. And I feel like, you know, it's just one of those things that um, if there were more understanding around that, we would have an easier time relating to one another. There would be more respect out there for working moms like you and I and Courtney. (laughs) And it's, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, through more conversations through, I don't think that the way to, like this kind of comes back to me too though. Like I don't, I think the anger and and airing these stories and these grievances and um, getting it out is really important. It's really important to coming to a place of understanding. But I think, and especially because of how women are perceived in our culture and anger isn't a desirable um, quality in a woman, let's say, um, that it's going to be hard. It's going to take some time before we can get past that to a place where we can like share stories in a way that isn't turning men off, basically, because they're so angry. Like, what does that trajectory look like? You know, how long does it take? How long does it take our culture to accept women's anger? Uh, I'm saying that, and how long does it take women who are angry to be able to express themselves and the things that they need to say without anger. Which I'm not saying is necessary. I'm saying it might be more productive if we're trying to create understanding. Like for the greater good. I know. I mean, that's, that's, that's a tough one. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm an angry woman. Like I have, a, I have a huge temper. And I always remember my dad saying, because I was always very angry, <laughs> my dad would say, Kate, you get a lot more with honey than you do with vinegar. And he said it to me so many goddamn times that like I, I still think about it all the time. But it's very true. Like when I'm coming from a place of anger, I'm always far less successful in, in achieving whatever it is I'm out to achieve than than when I express it through anger. And I mean, I know, you know, as as a good friend of mine, I know that like you shut down around anger. Like it's it is a turnoff. Like it's something that affects people, not just in like, oh, I'm turned off by that. I don't like that. But like, it can physically affect you when someone comes at you with anger, like it can, it can make you shut down. And so if it can make you shut down emotionally, that's not a great way to come to understanding around things. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm like talking about this in like a sort of social ideal. Oh, I, I do. I do. I do. Yeah. I understand it. I mean, I think that the reason I'm like, just, I'm just kind of thinking about it for a sec because I, there's also like different kinds of anger too. So I think like expressing outrage over, um, you know, basically violation of any kind or, um, you know, it's, I think it's okay to be angry about certain things and to be able to express it. I think there's a place for that especially if so, like something has been done that has hurt someone. Of course there is. You know, but I think you're to your point, would those calm conversations be received? Like sometimes the culture doesn't notice or a group of people doesn't notice or decide to listen until someone raises their voice because it's more convenient not to. Sure, but it would take that other side evolving too. Like this wouldn't be, they wouldn't be mutually exclusive. Right. Yeah, and they're hard. They're hard because we we fall back on those things where we're like, no, but I'm right because 
I deserve to be angry about this. And that is true in many cases, but is it productive, you know? And, and at what point does it, or I guess not is it productive, but at what point does it stop being productive? Like how long do we carry anger with us? I think about if I wanted to relate this back to myself, I would think about um, situations in my family where people are angry at each other. And so they've just, you know, they just no longer speak. And it's sad because some of those people are getting older and it's like, are you just going to carry that anger and resentment to your grave? Or are we going to like, is there a moment where we can kind of start to forgive, even though those things were messed up, can we start to forgive and, and remember the things that connect us? folks that's a wrap for this week and thanks to everyone who went down the wormhole with us we hope you enjoyed season one as much as we did and maybe even feel a little less hopeless about our country's political tensions i know i do and that's saying a lot in any case stay tuned for our upcoming season two of the multiverse where we zoom into the center of the budding cannabis industry oh that was so smooth (laughs) uh until then try not to die from curiosity america this land is your land this land is my land from california to new york island from redwood forest to gulf stream waters this land was made for you and me This episode was produced by Caitlin Scholl and myself, with editing and sound design by Ian Carlson and mix master by Chris Burns. Theme music is America by the incredible Bill Callahan, with This Land is Your Land rendition by Brzezowski. More information about this podcast, including additional episodes and future seasons, can be found at www.the-multiverse.com. And as always, thanks for listening. Okay, I'm recording. Okay, me too. Should we just jump right in? Yes.